I declare the games of the 32nd Olympiad closed. The Tokyo 2020 Olympics closed earlier this month with a ceremony featuring impressive displays of technology, a stirring taiko performance, and a memorable rendition of the Olympic anthem. Yet one notable omission from the closing ceremony was any mention of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima or Nagasaki, on whose 75th anniversary the closing ceremony was originally scheduled to be held last year. To be sure, this omission was no accident. The International Olympics Committee denied a request from Hiroshima Mayor Matsui Kazumi to observe a moment of silence during the closing ceremony, which came only after IOC President Thomas Bach incited controversy by ignoring the opposition of tens of thousands of petitioners to visit the city on July 16th, the 76th anniversary of the Trinity Test that sparked the atomic age. <laughs> To make matters worse, speaking in Nagasaki on August 9th, Prime Minister Suga Yoshihide drew criticism for a speech that some saw as insensitive in its praise for a successful Olympics despite the pandemic and in its verbatim recycling of past statements by his predecessor. In a press conference after the speech, Prime Minister Suga reiterated the government of Japan's refusal to sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Despite outspoken criticism from survivors, a Nagasaki resolution last year to strongly urge the government to reconsider, and urgent appeals this year from the mayors in both cities for the government to ratify the treaty as quickly as possible. What is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, and how did the Japanese government react to its ratification? How has opposition to nuclear weapons in Nagasaki been shaped by its long history of Christianity? And how did residents in Nagasaki see the Olympics as a lost opportunity to spread their message of peace? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and the history of the anti-nuclear movement in Nagasaki, I talked with Dr. Gwen McClelland, lecturer in Japanese studies at the University of New England in Australia, and the author of Dangerous Memory in Nagasaki, Prayers, Protests, and Catholic Survivor Narratives, published by Rutledge in 2019. I started by asking Dr. McClelland to explain the treaty, along with the reasons Japan refused to ratify it. Sure. Well, in a nutshell, the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is a treaty that's aimed at delegitimating nuclear weapons for good. So at the moment, we're doing a lot of talking about democracy and two thirds of the world's nations actually support this new treaty. So it's really aiming to shift the international legal norm and to create a stigma if we already did not have one around these weapons. It is aimed at defense policy, military doctrine, weapons manufacturing, at the banks and the super funds supporting weapons manufacturing. And this was also quite similar when cluster munitions and chemical and biological weapons and landmines were outlawed. So it sort of follows some of those treaties where the non-proliferation treaty has stagnated because the nuclear nations have come to believe that they could continue to maintain nuclear weapons for good. And so it doesn't seem like there's any end to the piles of nuclear weapons. On the one side, there are some nations which are arguing that nuclear weapons keep us safe and are necessary for defense. 
And so there was a number of nations which didn't actually sign the treaty, including the United States, United Kingdom, and so all of the nuclear states, but as well NATO member states and countries like Japan and Australia who see themselves as being under a nuclear umbrella. And then the Japanese reaction to the TPNW, the treaty, was that this was big news and it was on the front of all the newspapers in Japan. There was celebrations from some of the civil society groups such as Peace Boat online and the Twitter tag was Kakukin no Medito, so congratulations on banning the bomb, basically. And Japan's reaction, I think it's you could characterize it as being muted and absolutely ambivalent. The new Prime Minister Suga, in a speech to the United Nations General Assembly, avoided mentioning the ban treaty at all, and he chose to emphasize the non-proliferation efforts. He said Japan would spare no effort in relieving the world of nuclear weapons by maintaining the non-nuclear principles of not possessing, producing, or introducing nuclear weapons, and emphasize the non-proliferation treaty once again as the way to ensure Hiroshima or Nagasaki would never be repeated. As you mentioned, the treaty was finally put into effect after it was signed by the 50th country, which I believe was Honduras. Exactly. But then there were a number of countries around the world, including the U.S., including Japan, who refused to ratify the treaty. But you mentioned, you know, Suga was talking about, well, we don't want any more Hiroshima's or Nagasaki's. But uh, in fact, the city of Nagasaki itself passed a resolution strongly urging the Japanese diet to reconsider Japan's refusal to sign the treaty. And to be sure, this isn't the first time the city of Nagasaki has been an outspoken critic of the Japanese government or of nuclear weapons in particular. So can you talk about this history of opposition to nuclear weapons in Nagasaki and also introduce us to some of the local groups promoting these anti-nuclear political movements that, as we've seen, are so at odds with the central government? Yeah, sure. The history of opposition to nuclear weapons in Nagasaki is somewhat controversial. And I think we can remember that proverb, which is often used in Japan, that Hiroshima is anger, Nagasaki is prayer, in reference to the protest which comes out of the two cities. So People do, I think, believe that to some extent the Catholic presence in Nagasaki has quashed protest against the bomb and therefore Nagasaki has been forgotten. Uh, so partly due to this muted response. In my own work and in my book, I've actually looked at the history of the society which makes up the city. And there's a local philosopher named Takashi Shinji who's written about Nagasaki having a split personality something like a fissured society. So in my book, I, I call it the fissured society with two faces to the city. Can I give you an example of the Urakami Cathedral? Here we get into a bit of geography because this is a major difference between Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If you've ever been to the two cities, Nagasaki is very, very hilly. There's a valley and hills all around, whereas Hiroshima is a lot more flat. When the bomb hit, it landed in the north in the valley, and this was basically where most of the Catholics lived in around 1945. To trace the history of that, you could go back to the 1500s when the city was initially settled and there was a Jesuit mission going on there. The Urakami Cathedral ruins were a controversial part of protests in Nagasaki, and there was a stage where the Catholics wanted to rebuild the cathedral in the same place. And the city and most of the Hibaksha, the survivors of the atomic bombing in the city, didn't want the ruins raised because the ruins were such a symbol by that stage in the 50s of the city of Nagasaki and its protest of the atomic bombing. But the Catholics still wanted to rebuild. So there's kind of a political split between the Catholic population and the protest, which was largely coming out of the non-Catholic survivor community. 
That was a really interesting comment you made about this saying in Nagasaki that you know Hiroshima is anger, Nagasaki is prayer. Mm-hmm. And of course, Hiroshima every year has put forth the kind of no more Hiroshima statements on August 6th. Could you talk more about the difference in the way that the two cities have mobilized their history in their efforts against the proliferation of nuclear weapons? Sure. You know, if I, if I can use the example of Motoshima Hitoshi, this, this was the mayor in the 1980s. He is well known for a statement against the emperor, which was picked up by the media. He happened also to be a Catholic mayor and his ancestors were hidden Christians. So he came from the Goto Islands. You know, I, I think that the protest coming out of Nagasaki has been quite vociferous. It has actually been quite strong, as you say, over the years. But I think that the Catholic response has been somewhat muted at stages. And a part of the reason for that might be because of a a theology which came through in the Catholic Church early on, which tended to support the idea that maybe the bomb had been dropped as a part of God's providence. So this is something that I get into as well in my book. And I connect this to the legacy of Nagai Takashi, a doctor who assisted in the, the recovery after the bombing. And then he became a writer and he he wrote quite a few books, including one book which the US censor at the time, the the occupation censor allowed to be published with a written statement about the treatment of Manila by the Japanese army when they arrived there at the start of the book. So it's not that the book was published in any other statement like that. So Nagai Takashi is a really interesting Christian doctor. Some of the books he wrote included The Bells of Nagasaki, Leaving These Children Behind, Flowers of Nagasaki, and The Rosary Chain, and we could go on. So he wrote a lot of books, especially in that period of time, straight after the bombing. He actually passed away of radiation sickness in 1951, not before being visited by Helen Keller and and the Emperor of Japan. And I've interviewed his grandson a couple of times, and I've talked with a number of survivors and Catholic survivors about what they think about the legacy of Takashi Nagai. And they are quite ambivalent. And I think a part of the reason for that is that idea that, you know, God could allow a bomb to be dropped in order for a war to finish. And in Nagasaki itself as well, non-Catholic Nagasaki sort of see this legacy of Nagai Takashi, who is so well known by the world, and they have a feeling that his idea that the bombing could have been a providence is just about the Christian community as well. And so something that's dispelled that over time was the visit of Pope John Paul II in 1981. Part of the reason is that his first comments, which he he used very good Japanese for, were senso wa ningen no shiwaza desu. So the war is a work of humanity. So I think that the visit of the Pope meant for the Catholic survivors in particular, that they could move on from this troubling theology of the bomb as providence and start to see it as a human-induced catastrophe and start to be more open about their protest against the bomb. And so I think that's why when I actually came to speak with the survivors in the last 10 to 15 years, that they were very open about their antipathy against the bombing. That's fascinating, the the kind of fissures even within Nagasaki in terms of memory. And, mm-hmm. and of course, I should point out, you deal with this in great length in your book, Dangerous Memories in Nagasaki, especially talking about the kind of legacy of persecution of Christians all the way back into the 15th century with the Christian arrivals and then the Kakude Christian during the Tokugawa period. Yeah, so my book is called Dangerous Memory in Nagasaki, Prayers, Protests and Catholic Survivor Narratives. And it's based upon 
12 different atomic bomb survivors. And I'm looking at really their interpretations and especially focused on the Catholic community's interpretation of the atomic bomb. And so that's why I talk about Nagai Takashi's interpretation and how today parts of the Catholic community are starting to move on from that, even though others are still using that as their main understanding. And basically, I talk about how the memory of the atomic bomb is viewed through the lens of this community, which has experienced suffering and marginalization for more than 400 years and tie it back a little bit to the ancestors who had been persecuted. For example, one woman who I interviewed, her grandmother had been taken away in an exile in the 1870s. And so you can see that there's kind of a memory of survival that comes through for this community. We, we were talking before about this almost binary of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the mm. way, for obvious reasons, always put together. But even in this construction, it's almost as if Nagasaki itself kind of gets overshadowed mm -hmm. by Hiroshima. And certainly the observance of these commemorations on August 9th don't seem to be quite as widespread in Japan as they are on August 6th. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, with COVID-19 over the summer, of course, everything kind of, kind of fell through in the news. But what type of media coverage was there of the 75th anniversary of the atomic bombing of Nagasaki on August 9th? And then what type of narratives did you notice in the news? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think there is still a tendency for people to talk about Hiroshima before Nagasaki. But, you know, as you say, that can become a, a binary as well. There's, there's these two places. But August 9th this year, there was a couple of things that I could mention, but the Tokyo Olympics was actually supposed to be scheduled to finish on August 9th in 2020. And so I was interested to sort of see what reason there might be for that and what was the intention of that. But obviously that didn't happen because of COVID-19. Certainly from the point of view of people on the ground in Nagasaki right at the moment or this year, the COVID has reduced to some extent the coverage of the atomic bombings. And so they were, especially before the commemoration happened, they were particularly worried about the fact that the Hibaksha, the, the survivors wouldn't be able to come and speak at as many events. There were certainly commemorations which were reduced in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. There was only 500 people at the anniversary, for example. But the interesting thing is that the online commemorations this year, you know, the fact that people are ready to use their video conferencing features meant that in a number of cases, there were actually quite broad audiences for online events. And so the people on the ground were actually quite upbeat in the end about that. And even with the COVID-19 issues, there was still quite a lot of discussion. And then I think with the TPNW, the, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, that there was a moment of quite exhilaration when Honduras was the 50th country to ratify that. I mean, you mentioned that there was this kind of outpouring of support online, particularly after Honduras ratified the treaty, kind of putting it into action. But as you mentioned before, the Suga administration had refused to sign it, even if they were kind of gesturing towards it with their rhetoric about nonproliferation. Is there any sense that these types of movements are going to convince the government to reconsider their refusal? Right. You know, I think the positive thing for me is from a couple of angles. One is that, again, there's, there's a majority of countries around the world who support the TPNW. But as well as that, I think it is really interesting that it's not just the activists, not just the civil society groups. I think it was about 120 different previous NATO leaders, world leaders in government that are supportive of the treaty. And so I think there's quite a strong political will. And so just as the treaty against 
cost of arms has gradually increased in support over time. You know, once this shows that these kinds of weapons are illegal, inappropriate, forever being used, that there will be more pressure put on other countries and that I'm sure that we can see them joining in in the future. I followed up with Dr. McClellan after the Olympics finished to ask how local residents felt about the Games. Yes, Tristan, I was struck by the Olympics and the way that the Hiroshima and Nagasaki anniversaries seem to be forgotten, put aside. There was a call by the mayor of Hiroshima, of course, to remember the 6th of August Hiroshima Day and to at least observe a minute's silence at the Olympics. But this call wasn't heeded by the IOC. There was some talk that the IOC chief, that Bach would give an opportunity at the closing ceremony for people to think about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But again, Hiroshima and Nagasaki weren't mentioned once it came to the closing ceremony. I was even more struck by this because my colleague and myself, Yuki Miyamoto, we carried out a survey in 2020 and asked some Nagasaki public figures about their observations in terms of a few things. The 75th anniversary of the atomic bombing in 2020, the Olympics, which was coming up at the time that we put the survey out, and we didn't realise at that time that the Olympics would be postponed until 2021. One other thing that the participants in our survey made mention of was that the colonial history is a part of this. Out of the people who were killed by the atomic bombs, of course, around a tenth of them were of Korean background. So even though the death rate for the overall population in both cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, has been estimated at 33.7%, out of the total Korean indentured population at the time who were present in the two cities, the death rate was closer to 57.1%. So that's a really sobering number if you're talking about the colonial history of Japan and the reason that the Korean population was there because of the wartime and because they'd been brought there by the imperial Japanese regime. These figures were in the Asahi newspaper on the 3rd of August this year. So I'll just read one more comment from one of our participants to finish off talking about the Olympics. This participant was Okuyama Shinobu, who is an educator in Nagasaki City, and she said, I hope that at the opening and the closing ceremonies of the Olympics, the nuclear disaster at Fukushima and the war defeat of 1945 are raised. By showing remorse for the way Japan went and colonised Asia and involved Asian people in the war, these memories will be crucially transmitted to the younger generation in schools, teaching such a history. And this will ensure we do not wage war again. So really, I guess to sum up, my feeling overall about the Olympics is that listening to the voices of those who have suffered, the voice of memory, can be incredibly important and that this opportunity might have also remembered the impacts of Japan's victimisation of Asian countries. But also, I think, something else that was missed out on there was those who are continuing to suffer due to the ongoing pandemic. And of course, on the Thursday before the Olympic Games closed, they had over 5,000 people for the first time who caught COVID that day. And of course, the numbers are continuing to go up in Japan right now. But these voices, I think, were drowned out by that noise of gold, silver and bronze. I'm Tristan Gruno, visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University. And this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.